Good morning, Redeemer, Odessa. <laughs> My name is Jordan, and I um, am going to bring the passage to us today before Tanner comes up. We are in Mark chapter 7, and uh, we are in verses 24 through 30. If y'all want to turn there, I think it's on the screen also. So, <clears throat> Mark 7, 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Jordan. Thank you, Kat and Melody, for crossing the state line of Sam's 191 to come all the way to Odessa to be with us this morning. Really appreciate you guys filling in last minute. Zach's sister is getting baptized this morning at another church here in town, and so he's going to be stepping out in a minute, and so he didn't lead us. He just got to be a, a worshiper with us. It's good to see you back there. Thanks for coming to set up, even though you're not going to be here the whole time. Really appreciate the way you serve in the church, my brother. Hey, I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, we have a lot to cover. Um, I hope that you'll leave here both challenged and encouraged in Christ this morning. So we're back in our walk through the Gospel of Mark. Last week we talked about the legalism of the Pharisees. Uh, and here are the conclusions that we arrived at. And I want to place these in front of you again as we are looking at this text this morning. As believers in Christ, it is important that we uh, not forget these things, that we allow these things to sink deeply into our hearts. Uh, listen to me this morning. It is possible to do a bunch of good and godly things with wrong, sinful motives. It is possible that it look like you have your life all together and be spiritually dead. It is possible to elevate yourselves. It's possible to elevate your morality, your conservative politics, your own righteous living, and not the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross and his righteousness alone. Man, we all need God's grace we all need the forgiveness of sins, and there is nothing that we can do about it. Apart from faith in Christ's work on the cross and his resurrection, we are all utterly and completely hopeless and unable to save ourselves. Because of our sin, because of our disobedience to Christ's commands, because of our constant falling short of God's desires for us and God's standard of holiness placed before us in the scriptures, Man, our debt is steep. There is a cost so great that we could never repay on our own. But Jesus, Jesus paid it all by absorbing the punishment for us on the cross. And because of this, 
because of the death of Christ, we can have eternal life. We can have eternal life by faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing else can save our souls. Nothing else can atone for your sins. No amount of good deeds or moral living or money given can cover your debt. Only Christ's blood interceding for you can satisfy the payment required for salvation. But man, we have to acknowledge our need for Jesus. We have to acknowledge our need for Jesus through confession and repentance of sins. And that's a gift. Church, that's a gift of God through the Holy Spirit on our lives to reveal our need for him. It's the Lord's kindness that leads us to repentance. So Jesus, last week in our text, he confronts these religious leaders and their hypocrisy. And then he withdraws from the region into a less Jewish region. And he takes his disciples with him for a time of rest and a time for preparation. Jesus has his eye on the mission of reaching the world with the gospel. But before he can accomplish that, man, there's a cross before him. And this story today creates kind of an interesting contrast that is significant for the Gentile recipients of the Gospel of Mark and for us, a predominantly Gentile church in West Texas. Man, so as, our, as a church, um, our desire is to be missional in our approach to ministry. When we talk about missions as a church, I think there's this idea among you that there's like the super elitist class of Christians that are the super best of the best, cream of the crop, the A-team, varsity level Christians willing to go overseas and proclaim Christ to people not in the Bible Belt, people who maybe are willing to live in huts in Africa for the sake of the gospel. Man, that's certainly part of it. But let me challenge your perception of mission this morning, if I can. If you are in Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, you are called to be a missionary. Christ may call some of you, Christ may call some of you to sell all of your possessions and to move to some remote village somewhere that we can't pronounce or somewhere we've never heard of or somewhere we can't locate on a map. And man, I sincerely hope that that happens in this church. But on a more practical level, like a more realistic Odessa level, when Christ calls you into his family, he calls you into the family business of living on mission and making disciples. Wherever you happen to find yourself, that is your role as a Christian. What would change in your life if you started viewing your job or your family or your social lives as your mission field. Man, when we talk about missions at Redeemer Odessa, we want you to view mission as a whole life commitment. Where I work, where I live, where I play, I am a missionary to the gospel, for the gospel of Jesus. And so we structure our ministries here through the lenses of neighborhoods, nations, and next generations. That may be the Baptist in me coming out. But I think if we viewed ministry and missions in those ways, that may help us as a church solidify some of our vision around what we're trying to accomplish. So that's something we're going to discuss today. But before we jump in, I want to ask you this question. Do you have some people in your life 
that you would do anything for, for those people to not have to suffer or to not have to experience harm. Maybe this is like your parents or your siblings or your spouse or your kids or a friend. It seems like a lot of times we're willing to go to extreme lengths for people that we love. Like, have you ever been around the first-time mom of a newborn baby? If you have, you know how true this is. Like, sometimes you have to put on a hazmat suit to go in and see the baby. When I was in high school, I saw this movie starring Denzel Washington. Uh, It was called John Q. His little boy had this, like, enlarged elephant heart that couldn't like function properly in his body. So Denzel and his wife sell everything that they own to get enough money for the little boy's heart transplant. And at the end of it, they sold all their possessions. They still didn't have enough money. So Denzel goes in, takes the hospital hostage. Spoiler alert, he gets his son a new heart, and then he goes to prison. So in our text today, we see some like extreme levels of boldness. We see extreme faith. And also we're going to see the heart of Jesus for his people. Man, I want to pray that we can really see ourselves in this text this morning. I want to pray that we really just can identify with with this text. Because I think some of you see Jesus' love and compassion for people in the scriptures and see Jesus' heart for people in stories like these and think it's for others only. It's not for you. Perhaps you look at your life and think, man, I am unlovable, or I'm too sinful for Jesus to care about me anymore. Or maybe you think you've already outsinned God's ability to forgive because you swore to him over and over and over you were going to stop doing that thing that you're still doing. Man, but if this is you, I want to tell you, none of this is true. And I want you to consider what Jesus is revealing about himself in this text and in these interactions this morning. So let's pray, and we're going to jump into to our text this morning. Lord, we need you. Show us our need for you. Lord, show us your goodness and your nearness to us, even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel like you care about us anymore, Lord. Show us areas where we're believing lies about who you are and who you say we are in you. Lord, help us to trust you more this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24, it says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So again, Jesus and his disciples, they go to these twin cities, Tyre and Sidon. Think about like Midland and Odessa without all the weird division. Um, They're two like Gentile, meaning non-Jewish cities in the region. And some commentators suggest that they're like the hub of a lot of pagan practices, um, a lot of like cult rituals, very godless places. So again, think about like Midland and Odessa. It seems interesting to me that Jesus chooses this place to go. Maybe the thought is like, hey, if I can get away from all these Jewish folks seeking things from me, uh, me and my disciples can actually get some rest. Or maybe because Jesus is God, Jesus in 
his sovereignty, God in his sovereignty. He knows about this encounter that he's about to have, and he chooses this location for his glory. They go into this house, and the text says that Jesus didn't want anybody to know he was there, but his popularity is so large at this point that even non-Jewish people in the area and non-Jewish regions, they know about him. Jesus could not escape the crowds. And look what happens. Verse 25, it says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. Excuse me, out of her daughter. Um, So Jesus is in this house. And the text says immediately this woman comes and she falls down before him. Verse 26 says this woman is a Gentile. She's a Syrophoenician. She's a woman from like what is now kind of Syria, that area of the world. So a couple thousand years removed from this event, it may be hard to grasp the significance of what is happening here. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. Then we have this woman, a Gentile, from a primarily pagan area of the world coming to Jesus. By her race, by her geography, by her religious affiliation, by her gender, and she may also be a widow. So by her status, she is in the eyes of society one of the least Likely, and again in the eyes of Jewish society, one of the least worthy people to approach Jesus. And she is aware of all of this. But Jesus' reputation precedes him, and she's heard about him, and she's heard what he has done for others, and her child is under extreme oppression. So she abandons all social and religious customs and expectations on her, and she gets to Jesus. Tim Keller says, There are cowards. Then there are regular people, then there are heroes, and then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage, because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. Man, her posture before Jesus speaks to us that she is aware of how radical and extreme her actions are. She approaches Jesus boldly, yet in a humble posture. She falls down at his feet, which is a recognition of his position. She may not be fully aware of his deity, meaning she may not be fully aware that Jesus is God, but she's at least aware of his power. One commentator says that this act of prostration was a revelation of her humility, her reverence, her submissiveness, and her anxiety. In faith, in Jesus who can do great things, she begs him to help her daughter. She's begging him. She is not simply asking. Man, I want to make a couple observational asides about this text if I can. As an aside, I think this should be a caution for Western Christianity. We are such an instant gratification society. Like, you could pull out your phone and pretend like you're taking notes, but you could, like, be on Grubhub, and you could have McDonald's out there in the parking lot waiting for you by the time this is over. Instant gratification. 
And sometimes we approach God through prayer in a way that confirms that. I'm so guilty of this in my own life. Like, think about your life for a second. Do you pray for things with this type of urgency and with this type of desperation? Sometimes my answer is like, yeah, I do that one time. And I know I'm not alone. Man, I get convicted a lot about my lack of prayer, specifically around the two most important things in my life. My family and this church. It's like I get frustrated when I'm praying for things again that one time and I don't get the results that I expect to get when I want them, which is right just now, right? So a lot of times my prayers remain shallow and generic. And again, I know I'm not alone. But may we approach God with the same type of boldness that we see in this woman in our text today. May we see that because of our sin... We are, in fact, unworthy to come before the Lord. But may we also know with confidence that because of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we now have unencumbered access to God by grace, through faith, in Christ, to boldly approach the Lord and humbly submit our request before him. And may we not grow weary in doing so, knowing that Christ wants What Christ wants the most is our faith and dependency on him. He delights in answering his children, and he also delights in giving us what we need most, himself. So another observation I want to make is this. Devante's not here, so I'm going to need somebody to go, hey, when I say this. Uh, In theological terms... We have this word called typology. Um, A type or typology is this. It's defined like this. A shadow cast on the pages of Old Testament history by a truth whose full embodiment or anti-type is found in the New Testament through Revelation. So, for example, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah... It is more than just the story of a prophet who gets a command from God to go to a people, to go to his enemies that he runs from. He runs from his calling. And then he gets thrown into an angry sea. And when he hits the water, the sea's wrath was calmed. And then he spent three days inside the belly of a great fish or a watery tomb, only to be raised again three days later. Man, the story of Jonah is a foreshadowing of the coming Messiah. Jesus, Jesus Christ is the true and better Jonah, the prophet who goes to his enemies in love and gets thrown into the angry sea of a sin-sick world and calms the wrath of the storm of death by becoming death for us. And then he's resurrected from his tomb in three days. So now faith and repentance are possible. And former enemies become members of the family of God. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. And there are all kinds of stories in the Old Testament that point forward to the person and work of Jesus. Where these Old Testament patriarchs failed, Jesus is the fulfillment. So our text today is another one of these type of moments that we see in the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus. In 1 Kings 17, you can read it later, we see another 
desperate pagan Gentile widow approach God's prophet in the same region that we find Jesus in today. Both of these women have children in need of help. Both plead for the prophet of God to intercede on behalf of their children. And it is fitting that both widows should receive help from a God who cares specifically for widows and orphans. The story of the Syrophoenician woman is beckoning us to remember back to a time that God has granted a request of this nature in the past. Man, God's kindness is on display to the nations here. This is a foreshadowing of the work of the Messiah who, by his work on the cross, will transcend social and ethnic and religious barriers of men to redeem and restore sinful humanity back to himself. Man, and that is important for us to understand because of what Jesus is about to say to this lady. Things are about to get a little awk. Uh, Verse 27, And he said to her, he being Jesus, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So this is one of the harder statements of Jesus. The reason Jesus, let me think about this. I don't, want this. I don't want this to offend you, and I'm going to tell you why. The reason Jesus referred to this non-Jewish woman, or the reason that Jewish people in general refer to non-Jewish people as dogs is hard. But I don't want this to lessen the significance of what is ultimately about to happen. There are a few possible explanations as to why Jesus said what he said. Jews often use the word dogs to refer to Gentiles. Even though it would seem out of character for Jesus to do so, to kind of be this harsh, Jesus certainly used it in the same way here. In the Bible, over the course of salvation history, the Jews took precedence over the Gentiles, And that includes within the ministry of Jesus. Even the Apostle Paul, missionary to the Gentiles, says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, a.k.a. the Gentile. This doesn't mean that God loves Jews more than Gentiles, or that Jews are more important to God than Gentiles are. But Jesus is in the lineage of Abraham, and so the Messiah was revealed first to the Jews and then to the non-Jews after the Jews rejected Christ. God tells Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. There's another use of this word dogs in the Greek language that makes this not a scavengy, mangy-looking stray dog, but a cute little puppy. But that still seems a little belittling to me. Like, when I was trying to convince my wife to go out on a date with me 15 years ago, I didn't call her up and be like, hey, can I take you to dinner? You remind me of a cute little puppy. (laughs) Like, that's not flattering, and it doesn't seem all that affectionate. Some people say Jesus is quoting a Jewish proverb. This is where I land on the, the statement of Jesus. Hang with me for a minute. What we see in the other gospel accounts of Jesus 
is that his immediate mission seems to be restricted to the nation of Israel or the Jews. In Matthew 10, we see that he actually forbids his disciples from preaching the gospel to Gentiles and Samaritans. This seems to be consistent with what is taking place here. There is a sharp distinction between children and dogs. And it's also clear that the woman understands this, as we're about to see. Man, after the cross and resurrection, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles will be torn down, and the gospel must and will be preached to all nations. Galatians 3 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. Man, if you are a non-Jewish Christian... You have an inheritance through the offspring of Abraham, and that is Jesus Christ. Regardless of race, class, gender, status, nationality, we're seeing that this is true in the life and the ministry of Jesus, that God does indeed have a heart for the nations, both Jewish peoples and Gentiles alike. Salvation is now available to everyone everywhere. And we've seen it begin to take place with the demon-possessed man a few weeks ago in the Gerasenes. Jesus actually commissioned him to go to the Decapolis, which is a non-Jewish region, and tell them what God has done for them. And now, directly, Jesus is intersecting this Gentile woman's life. So it seems like this. Man, her faith needs to be tested. This woman is outside of the Old Covenant. She must realize, this is from a commentary, it says she must realize that her only hope lay in the uncovenanted mercies of God. Unless she was prepared to approach approach the Jewish Messiah in the knowledge that she was still a Gentile outside the old covenant, then her day of healing had not yet come. After the cross, when the dividing wall had been broken down, it would be another world with Jew and Gentile made one in Christ. So I'm confident that Jesus isn't being misogynistic here. He's not being chauvinistic here. That Christianity is not a male-dominated patriarchy. Man, because of what we've seen in the Gospel of Mark with other healings and what we see in the other Gospels in the life and ministry of Jesus, what we see in Jesus' personal relationship with women, I think Jesus is setting the stage to prove himself and to perfect the faith of not only this Gentile woman, but of his disciples. Man, Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. Remember the reason why they're in this region in the first place. They're there to rest. They're there for training and teaching. What we see is that through this woman's God-given faith, it was strong enough to realize that Jesus was not turning her away, she was overpowered by his love and tenderness and compassionate attitude, even when his apparent sternness was unable to hide. Jesus, in his response, leaves the door open for this woman to know that he is still willing, he is still able to heal her daughter. 
when he says first the kids, that leaves room for also the dogs. The kids will get fed, so will the pets. And look at how this woman responds. Verse 28, but she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Man, this woman gladly accepts this humble position before Christ and still claimed healing for her daughter. She is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to call Jesus Lord, which means master. She is submitting to his lordship, to his leadership, to the rule and reign of Jesus for her life. Man, what we're seeing here is not sign-seeking. We're not seeing sign-seeking, miracle-seeking of the Jews like we discussed last week. But we're actually seeing faith and dependency in the God-man who can and will and is pleased to act on her behalf. Her faith, this Gentile woman from this pagan region, has a higher Christology than that of the religious leaders who are supposed to know who the Messiah is. She is aware of who Jesus is, and she is aware of what he can do. And look, God's abundance for his children was so rich that even a total outsider could share in it. God promised that through the lineage of Abraham, all the nations on earth will be blessed. And we're seeing this promise come to fruition here. All right, let's close this text. Mark 7, 29. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Alan Cole says that Jesus, uh, to Jesus, her reply demonstrated not her wit, but the depth of her faith. Her daughter was healed. So here's where I want to spend a few minutes with you as we close. It is crucially important, church, that we do not separate the humanity of Jesus and the deity or kingly rule and reign, God in flesh, nature of Jesus. Jesus is God in flesh, God becoming man to save sinners. And we can't separate the two natures of Jesus. Jesus intentionally withdrew to this region to encounter this woman who had a need that only he could meet. We are this Gentile woman. And because God in his nature and character is unchanging, God is still pleased to move and act on your behalf as well. May we boldly approach the throne of grace with faith and confidence in the God who is for you and not against you. Man, also Jesus intentionally withdrew to this region to begin to reveal his purposes to the 11 apostles who would, after his death, resurrection, and ascension, they would take the gospel to the nations by establishing churches in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. We are gathered today because of the faithfulness of these men. We are gathered today because of their obedience to God's calling on their lives. The church has been established, and we have the same call to go and make disciples, to go and plant churches, to engage in missional efforts locally and abroad. Man, what we learn from this text, Jesus cares for individuals, and so should we. So when we talk about missions on a local level, this is what we mean. This is what we mean. If you remember at the beginning, I gave you the three ends, very Baptist of me, neighborhoods, nations, next generations. Let me start with neighborhoods. 
I want this to motivate us on like a real world, real life level. You can think of neighborhoods as like our local mission stuff in our individual uh, efforts here. Yesterday I saw something that made me kind of upset, and it wasn't with anyone in this church, and I have been guilty of what I'm about to say in the past too. And since I squeezed you all really hard last week, I'm not going to do that again today other than maybe to ask you to consider your interactions with non-church people. I was at Rose's. There was this guy that was berating the 15-year-old kid behind the counter over four ounces of beans and a basket of chips. And I don't think it would have bothered me so bad. But like, this dude's a deacon at a church here in town. I don't want the kindness of Jesus to be something we talk about on Sundays and in our community groups. And it be something we claim for our lives as followers of Christ. And then... Knowing the privileges and benefit that Christ affords us, knowing the wrath we have been spared from, we aren't willing to extend that same grace to others. And that includes complete strangers who may never step foot inside the fun dome. Christians, we have to do better. Look, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, It most likely didn't happen in isolation, right? You encountered Jesus because somebody introduced you to Jesus. Maybe you grew up in church and praise God for the faithfulness of your parents or your Sunday school teachers and your pastors who taught you. Even if you look back on your church experience with some complaints, someone was faithful enough to at least teach you the basics. And your parents or your friends or somebody got you there, right? Maybe you didn't grow up in church, but you had a bold friend or a family member who shared Christ with you and was persistent. Either one of these camps, God was gracious to reveal himself to you. God was gracious to save your soul by his divine will. And Christ is called the church, and Christ is called the people of the church to be the vehicle for reaching other people with the gospel. Man, so our hope as a church is that we can equip you to go to your neighbors, go to your coworkers, your friends and families with boldness, empowered by the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And because we have the Holy Spirit, we have everything we need. This is a shameless plug for the evangelism training that's coming up in a few weeks. Man, you have everything you need to care for people, but caring for people must go beyond meeting physical needs, right? Think about where you would have been had Christ not intersected you in your rebellion. Hebrews 13, 20, and 21 says, Now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead... Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I just want to encourage you. You can do it. Christ has called you and Christ has equipped you for every good work in him. You can do it. So that's our neighborhoods bucket. You can think of it in terms of like local ministry. Then there are the nations. So we're a church plant who desires to plant more churches. 
We want to be a church planting church. Our hope is that we train and equip missionaries and church planters to go. We want to send people to hard places like South Odessa and other places in our region. That's true, don't laugh. Uh, Places like Southeast Asia. We want to send people to unreached people groups. We want to send our best people. And we want to send them with the most physical and financial resources as possible. Jesus gives his disciples the great commission to go and make disciples, to make Christ followers of all nations. And so, again, the vehicle that God is using to reach the world with the gospel of Christ are people called by Christ. God may call some of you to go. God may call some of you to give to these works, and both of these things are necessary. If you want to be a part of a church that is dead set in our mission to reach people with the gospel both home and abroad, I believe you are in the right place. We have, by the Lord's grace, started meeting international students on our college campus. My hope is that we can have these students in our church for a few years, train them and equip them in the work of the ministry, and then send them home, send them back out into the world, back somewhere in the States, or back to their home countries with a hunger to make disciples in their home countries. But, man, we need each other. We need you to be hospitable to these students who are far from home and needing people to come alongside them and serve them. And you can do this. Listen, when I say you can do it, I probably should also say we can do this. Christ isn't asking you to be some Lone Ranger type of Christian. We aren't called to exercise our faith in isolation. You need the church. We need each other. We need our brothers and sisters in Christ to push us towards holiness and to help keep us accountable to the things of God. So that's nations. Then we have next generations. This is pretty simple. We want to invest in our kids. My hope is not that we would be a church with a bunch of programs designed to reach out to kids. Not that those things are bad. Uh, But my hope is that we would be a church that teaches moms and dads to be the primary disciple makers of their homes. I want this church to be a supplement for you. I don't want this church to be the primary spiritual influence on your kids' lives. I want us to teach each other how to do this. I'm going to be really honest. I am so deficient here, but I'm trying. Man, we need to encourage each other to keep going. And look, if you're not a parent, this isn't the only thing we're asking of you as a church. My desire is to be a church that actively pursues to have a deep and meaningful impact in the foster care crisis in our county and in our state, and also the orphan care crisis worldwide. And look, not everyone of you needs to foster or adopt kids. But every one of you, if you are a Christian, needs to care. Children and orphans and widows are very near to the heart of God. So should it be with us. And thank God that he has given this little church a desire to be involved in this ministry. At present count, we have 35-ish adult members and counting. And eight children in our church have been adopted out of foster care. And that's like, that's a huge deal. And in this same vein, if we're honest, our world is a very dark place. And it seems to be growing darker every day, and that need is not going away. 
But I'm confident that Christ is going to return and not return to a defeated church, but to a church that is more, vic- more than victorious because of who he is and what he's done. But one of the worst possible outcomes is that we as Christians in this room, ranging from the ages of 20 to 100, um, don't seek to replicate this into the next generation. Man, as a church, I want to be consistently pro-life from womb to tomb. My hope is that we're investing in one another, pushing one another towards holiness and towards faith, independency in Christ. So before any of this can take place, we must be regenerated in Christ. You must have a relationship with Jesus and through his indwelling Holy Spirit, be submissive and obedient to him in the work of ministry. And I want to throw this out there too. Foster care is not the only thing we're passionate about. It is something I'm passionate about, and I think it's very important. But that's not the only thing there is to be passionate about. Again, we're trying really hard to reach the students at UTPB. Um, We've inherited a ministry that's allowing us to partner with other churches, try to reach college students. But it also allows us to be on campus. And Mark can't be the only one who's meeting students. If you are looking for things to plug into and invest in, we have them here. (laughs) If you have questions about how to get involved in some of this, let's talk. At my church planning assessment two years ago, one of the guys on my board says, hey, do I have to do foster care to go to your church? And I said, no, man, what are you passionate about? So I submit that to you as well. If you have something you're passionate about and it's in line with our mission, vision, values as a church, let's talk about it. Let's see how we can equip you and resource you to pursue ministry, man. This is a really weird and dark place we live in. This place needs the Lord. How can we serve you and resource you and equip you to make disciples in Odessa? But again, we have to have hearts that have been changed by the gospel. We have to have new life in Christ. We must know Jesus. We must know who he is and what he's done for us. We don't serve the church and others out of an obligation or in an effort to earn God's favor. Rather, we serve out of a deep understanding of why the cross is absolutely necessary for us in the first place. We are all so incredibly broken and sinful and in need of a Savior. We love and serve God because he first loved and served us. He came to earth died the death that was rightly due for us for the penalty of sin. So church, this morning, I want to encourage you just to walk in that. Christ has set you free from sin and death, and this knowledge should lead you and propel you towards mission and towards worship. I'm so encouraged by a lot about what's going on here. I just also want to encourage you to not be complacent. If you're feeling defeated about your missional pursuits, I want to tell you that that is not from the Lord. If you're feeling convicted by your lack of desire or your past struggles in this area, man, that is a gift of the Lord to recognize this and to confess this and to repent and move forward in faith and boldness. Christ went to the cross to save sinners. We're not responsible for anybody else's faith or response to us. We're only responsible for our obedience in Christ. Christ went to the cross to save sinners, and that includes you. You have not outsinned God's ability to save. You are not unlovable. You are worthy because of Jesus. Stop trying to clean yourself up before God. There is an empty tomb that says the work has already been completed on your behalf. 
Repent, believe, Jesus wants you in spite of you. So let's get to work. Let's pray.